morning. Will you turn to Psalm 130 with me? Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, as we come to you, come to your word this morning, pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that you would work through it, give us grace to the proclamation of it, grant us repentance, help us to see the glory and the majesty of you, help us to see and behold Jesus as a glorious and sufficient Redeemer, and just instruct us through your Holy Spirit. We need you now, and we pray that you bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, our text will be the whole eight verse, all eight verses of the 130th Psalm. The 130th Psalm is one of the Psalms of Ascent. Your Bible probably says that um, underneath the title. The Psalms of Ascent were a collection of 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 to 134. They're sometimes called the Gradual Psalms, Psalms of Degrees, Songs of Steps, or Pilgrim Songs. The reason for this is because of their historical use. The people of God would use these songs when they would go to Jerusalem during the various feasts and festivals. Jerusalem was set up on a hill so that when they were walking up to Jerusalem, they would be ascending and singing these songs while they were ascending up to Jerusalem. And so one thing that I want to point out first that's so beautiful about this is that when we sing the psalms like we just did, we're singing songs that have been a part of the tradition of God's people for thousands of years. God's people have sang these psalms for thousands of years and we're a part of that. Given they're translated into English now, we're still singing out of God's own inspired hymnal. And so we sing the same songs as the giants of the faith, right? We sing the same songs that Jesus himself, our Lord, sang. Think about Luke 2, when Jesus went up to Jerusalem um, for Passover as a boy. He undoubtedly would have sang this very psalm with Mary and Joseph and anyone else who was accompanying them. And so it's important to realize that as Christians, we're part of something that's much bigger than ourselves. Something that's older than us, older than our day. Something that will remain after we die and we're gone. To be counted among God's elect is to partake of a union with Christ that we share with brothers and sisters from the beginning to the end of time. And so before we begin in our text this morning, I want to point out this particular psalm's significance. I decided to preach this because it's been a long-time personal favorite of mine, and it didn't take me very long in my study to find out that that opinion is in pretty good company. This psalm was apparently a favorite of John Calvin, as well as Augustine. Martin Luther referred to it as a Pauline psalm because of its straightforward nature, and he actually wrote a paraphrase of it titled, From the Depths of Woe. And last, but definitely not least, is the great uh, theologian John Owen, who wrote a 429-page exposition titled, (laughs) The Forgiveness of Sins. 
So my sermon's not that long, so we'll <laughs> hopefully get out of here. But um, No, but seeing how great our text this morning has struck these godly men of the past, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would use it and apply it to us in a powerful way this morning. And so let's begin by reading verses 1 and 2. Psalmist starts by saying, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. The psalmist begins by crying out from the depths. And so in order to define and, and really understand what the depths are, we need to look forward a little bit in the psalm and, and look at what the psalmist's requests are. In verse 2, he raises a supplication. Now this could also be translated as a plea for mercy. That's how the English Standard Version translates it. Mercy for what? Verse 3, he speaks of iniquities of men. And in verse 4, the forgiveness of God. So we can conclude, based upon his request, that the depths are a place of iniquity. He asks for mercy. He admits iniquity. And he professes the forgiveness of God. The depths are a place of iniquity. A place when sins are made known. A place of conviction and contriteness. The depths can be thought of as the feeling of drowning, right? Sinking lower and lower in iniquities and feeling helpless. I think this is illustrated well in Psalm 69, 1 and 2, where the psalmist says, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood has overthrown me. The psalmist is experiencing the life-threatening anguish of sinking into the deep waters of sin. But notice this. The depths of sin cause the psalmist to cry out. He cries out to God because he's overwhelmed and overcome by the reality of his sinfulness. His soul is burdened. His spirit is grieved. He needs to be rescued. And so it's important to ask ourselves, have, have, have you experienced this? Have you experienced this feeling, this place of being in the depths? Now notice at the end of verse 1, he says, I cry to you, O Lord. And you'll notice that uh, if you have the New American Standard, Lord is in all caps. That's because the, uh, the proper name of God is used here in the Hebrew so really what he's saying is, I cry out to you, O Yahweh. It's important to notice that because of the beginning of verse 2, the second use of Lord, where he, it's only the L is capitalized, and that's because behind that word, the uh, word used is Adonai. And Adonai is a name for God that's used to acknowledge his sovereignty or his lordship, his ownership over all things. And so he not only cries out from the depths, but he cries out to the one who rules over all things. He cries out to the only one who's able to deliver him, right? Adonai, sovereign, ruler, king, I cry out to you. It's important to cry out to one who can do something for you, right? If you're asking for someone to help you, it's important to ask for someone that can actually do it. And so he cries out to God using his um, name uh, that signifies sovereignty and rulership. He continues, 
by saying, Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. The psalmist now reveals why he's crying out, what he's crying out to God for. To hear his supplication, right? Which again could be translated as a plea for mercy. He's in the depths of his sins. He cries out to God and his plea is for mercy. He confesses his drowning spiritual state within the depths of his iniquities and he cries out to the only lifeline that can save him, which is the mercy of God. And now he moves from there, from his confession of his own sinfulness to a profession of God's holiness. Verse 3, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist, in lifting his eyes towards God, is struck by his holiness. Much like Isaiah when confronted with the splendor and majesty of God's perfection, was so struck by it that he can't, the psalmist can't even help but communicate the same sentiment as Isaiah did, right? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He asks the rhetorical question that that we we get this from. He says, who shall stand before you? If you mark iniquities, who, who can stand before you? We're all unclean. Who can stand? Who can endure the weight of your justice that's demanded when you mark our iniquities? Who can approach the bar of God's judgment and enter any plea other than guilty as charged? Who can strengthen their legs enough to bear up underneath the infinite weight of God's perfect and righteous wrath towards sin? No one. No one can. There's none righteous. No, not one. If you, O Lord... Mark iniquities, who could stand? What we need to notice here is that this profession that the psalmist makes, this view of God and man and sin, is uniquely Christian. Why do I say that? Think about a works-based religion. We can take Islam, for example. If you ask them this question, you say, if God marks iniquities, who can stand before him? What would they say? The entire religion is fundamentally based upon the idea that man can stand before God when he marks iniquities. The psalmist asks it rhetorically, if God marks iniquities, who can stand before him? And the Muslim is forced to raise his hand and say, I will. The Mormon raises his hand, I can. The Jehovah's Witness, I can. And on and on, right? Every workspace religion has to answer this question. I will be able to stand before God when he marks iniquities. How? Well, if I just do enough good deeds, God will grant me pardon. If I can just tilt the scales into my favor, then God will be inclined to be merciful to me. If I'm just kind of a good person, the psalmist didn't think this way. Let me ask you a question. When you think about the sins that God forgave you for, what deeds do you consider? What comes to mind? In my experience, many people consider only their bad deeds or things that are explicitly forbidden in God's law to be sinful. The truth, however, is found in Isaiah 64.6 where he writes, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, 
and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. It says that our righteous deeds are a filthy garment before God. Why? Because even what outwardly might appear to be good deeds are coming from what's unclean. A leper could do a good deed and, and spend days making garments for everyone in the city, but no one would be able to accept that because they've been contaminated by the leper. They're unclean. It's the same with our good works. This truth is actually rooted in the word iniquities. The word literally means a thing that's not equal or not fair. So even our best deeds, being corrupted by our fallen nature, are still categorically counted as iniquities because they're not equal to the perfection of God's law and God's own deeds. And so every deed that fallen man produces is, in one way or another, sin before God. This should give us a much higher appreciation for God's grace towards us. Because, and this is important, Jesus didn't only die in order to forgive our worst deeds, but also our best deeds. Even the best efforts of fallen man is filthy before God. It adds to the problem it can't solve it. And so, take the picture we used earlier of the psalmist drowning in the depths of his sin, striving to be justified by good works, right? Saying, if I can just do enough good things, God will forgive me. That's like a drowning man asking for more water. A drowning man asking for more water. A sinner trying to earn forgiveness by God, by doing good works, is the height of foolishness and futility. It only adds to the problem. That's why the psalmist didn't begin his journey out of the depths by saying, or by looking inward, right? He didn't look to himself to get, him, to himself, to get himself out. He cried out to God. He looked to another. He looked away from himself. Because he knew that all he could do was add to the ocean of sins that were striving to pull his soul under. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? No one. No one can. And that's, that's the bad news. That's the ugly truth that none of us like to hear. We don't like to be confronted with it. But it's true. It's what God says in his word. And also, it provides the perfect backdrop for the glory of God's mercy to shine forth. Look what the psalmist says next in verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. This is one of those really gloriously sweet conjunctions <laughs> that we find in the Scriptures. I, I never loved seeing the conjunction but until I started reading the Bible, because that little word usually connects how bad we are and how good God is, right? It, it, it exchanges our helplessness for hope. It, it, it just shifts things, and it's, it's just beautiful when you, when, when you see that. And I mean, this whole block of text here reminds me, uh, you guys might have thought the same thing, of, of Ephesians chapter 2, right? Paul, the Apostle Paul says, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, following the world, following the devil, you know, following your lusts, but God... Right? Being rich in mercy made us alive together in Christ. 
same, same type of layout here. Who could, who could stand if you mark iniquities? No one, right? No one can stand. But with you, there's forgiveness. So you can see why Luther referred to this as a Pauline psalm. Because it's, it's a straightforward, it's a gospel psalm. Right? You have the justice of God meeting the mercy of God right here. And so, it's important to notice that not only did the psalmist reject the idea that his own deeds could merit pardon, but he also didn't locate the reason for God's forgiveness in something inside of himself. Right? He didn't say, with you there's forgiveness because I tried really hard. Or, with you there's forgiveness because you, you saw how sincere I was when I cried out. No, he says, there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God's own glory is the end to which sinners are forgiven. It's so that God would be feared, so God would be obeyed, so God would be praised, so God would be revered. Now, let's look at the psalmist's response to the holiness of God and the forgiveness that he offers. Verses 5 and 6. Um, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in His word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. It says, My soul waits for the Lord. The psalmist raises his eyes right, to two things in the previous verses. He saw that the character of God revealed in His holiness as well as the forgiveness that's offered by God. He, he saw who God is in His holiness and what God does, what God offers in His forgiveness. And notice when he starts in verse 5, he doesn't say, my soul waits for forgiveness. Rather, he says, my soul waits for the Lord. The psalmist was not interested in God merely because of what God had to offer him. It was because of who God is. He, wa- he was waiting for the Lord, not for the Lord to give him something. He was waiting for God himself. I'm waiting for the Lord, he says. Recall the words of the psalmist in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In much the same sentiment, the the psalmist here is waiting for God because of who God is. He sees the beauty of God and he wants God. He desires God, not just what God gives. He's waiting for the Lord. He says, "In, in his word I hope. The psalmist placed his hope in the word of God. He believed and trusted in the, in the promises that were, or the promises of forgiveness that were offered by God in His Word. And he knew that the Word of God is sure because God Himself is sure. Right? Whatever is spoken by the unchanging one can't change. And the one who marks iniquity can't commit iniquity. He can't lie. He can do nothing less than carry out the words that He has spoken because His very nature requires it. The psalmist is waiting on God to fulfill his promise of redemption. Verse 6 tells us how the psalmist waits. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. It's repeated twice for emphasis. But think about, think about the watchman that waits for the morning. Think about how they wait for the morning, right? Can he just fall asleep? Can he let his mind wander off and think about other things? Can he be passive in his watching? No, of course not. A watchman's actively engaged in watching over whatever it is that he's been assigned to watch over. Think about the watchman here on the night watch. The time when it's natural to be sleeping. Nothing's going on, everything is quiet in the still of night. And surely as the night goes on, the watchman gets more and more eager to see the sunrise so he can go and get some rest. Think about those last few moments before, or when the watchman can slightly see the sun behind the horizon. How eager must he feel to see that first beam peek over the horizon? How active would the watchman have been waiting for the morning? The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord more than that watchman does for the morning. I'm more eager for God's appearing. I'm more eager for God than that watchman is to see the sun. And so thus far we've seen the psalmist cry out from the depths of his sin for mercy. Then he professes the holiness and perfect, or perfect justice of God and also the forgiveness that he can offer. Then he trusts in the promises while eagerly waiting them to be revealed. And now lastly, we'll see the psalmist start to preach. Verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So while up to this point the psalmist has used personal pronouns, right? I cried, I wait, I hope. Now he turns his focus to uh, Israel, which in this context is all of God's people in all ages, the people of God. He preaches to us even today, and he gives, he gives us the imperative of his message. Hope. Hope in the Lord, Israel. Hope in him. He would say, are you in the depths, Israel? Hope in the Lord. Are you cast down? Hope in the Lord. Are you drowning in your guilt and your shame? Hope in the Lord. Why? He moves forward. He says, for, there is, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. With Him there's a deep love. It doesn't change. It doesn't sway. It doesn't ever get revoked or diminished. The love of God is an immovable love. It's steadfast love. And from this love, he says, comes plentiful redemption. Right? He goes, if you thought you were drowning in the waters of your sins, wait till you're thrown into the seas of God's redemption. If you thought you were covered head to toe in uncleanness, wait till he wraps you in his perfect righteousness. With God, there's plentiful redemption. There's an abundance. 
There's more than enough for you and I. Verse 8, he concludes by saying, And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now notice, notice the future tense here. The psalmist prophesies that God will redeem Israel from their sins, right? In the future. He's looking forward to redemption. It will happen in the future. He will redeem Israel. Now, there's a somewhat popular belief out there that I think is very dangerous. There are those who believe that Old Testament saints were saved by some other means than the cross of Christ. And this belief kind of works itself out in a few different ways. Right? Some would say that Old Testament saints were saved by the keeping of the law. This can't be true, though, because Paul writes in Galatians 2.16 that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Some think that the Old Testament saints were saved by the sacrificial system. That can't be true because the author of the Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Some believe that the Old Testament saints were saved by just kind of having some just generic faith in God. Just sort of believing that God's a forgiving God and that was enough for them. This can't be true because the perfect justice of God requires that sin be punished. A general belief in God can't justify anyone. Think about the demons. They all believe in God, but there's no atonement for them. So a general belief can't be what justifies. The truth about how the Old Testament saints were saved is actually much simpler than all of those things. They're saved in the exact same way that you and I were. They're saved through the gospel. And you might say, hold on, how, how could they be saved by believing the gospel when the gospel hadn't been fully revealed yet? The answer is that the gospel was preached, at least in part, all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Right? Within God's curse upon the devil, we find the first promise of the gospel. He says to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So God promises that there would be a seed, the seed of the woman who would have his heel bruised by the serpent or the devil, which was the crucifixion. And in turn, the head of the serpent would be bruised or crushed by the seed of the woman. This was the redemption that was accomplished through the cross of Christ. And so the gospel was presented, although it wasn't fully presented in all of its detail, it was presented immediately after the fall of man. Right away. The gospel was also pointed to by the various types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, right? The high priest, the sacrificial system, the Passover feast, the tabernacle, on and on, right? It's all pointing to Jesus, the greater. So the people of God in the Old Testament that were saved were saved by believing in the gospel, the same gospel that we believe in. They were just looking forward to it through types and shadows, and we're looking back to it revealed in its entirety. And the reason why I wanted to point this out is to tie back into a point that I made in the beginning. I pointed out how we're part of something that's much bigger than us, 
And that when we sing the psalms, it reminds us of that. But not only do we sing the same songs as the Old Testament saints did, but we look to the same Redeemer. We have a fundamental unity with the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation and all ages based upon our mutual union with Christ. The psalmist here in verse 8 points forward to the Redeemer of Israel and now we, in our day, point back to the same Redeemer. Compare verse 8 of our psalm with Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. The psalmist points forward to the Redeemer of Israel, and the Apostle Paul in Titus points backwards. Apostle Paul wrote there, Jesus, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. He gave us, past tense. He's looking back. So while the psalmist is pointing uh, forward and the apostle is pointing backward, all saints at all times are always pointing to Jesus. Before the cross, they looked forward to the Redeemer, and after the cross, we all look back to the same Redeemer. This also gives us insight on how the Bible was written, right? All the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and all the New Testament points back to Jesus. The main point of the whole Bible is Jesus. The main point of human history is Jesus. He's the centerpiece of all of it. He's the one who brings man and man and different points of history together, but he's, more importantly, he's the one that brings God and man together. It's all about Jesus. This psalm is about Jesus. Other Psalms, they're about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. The New Testament is about Jesus. In one way or the other, they're all about Jesus. They're all pointing us to Jesus, the centerpiece of it all. And so in summary of our Psalm, we can see that it's a journey from the depths of sin to the heights of redemption. He starts by crying out to God from the depths He then lifts his eyes up to God's holiness and demand for perfection. After that, he considers the forgiveness offered by God. This led him to trust in and wait for the Lord. And then lastly, after experiencing this journey for himself, he began to preach the message to others. And so, how can we apply this this morning? Well, the first way is for those that, that, who may not have experienced this spiritual journey described by the psalmist from the depths of sin to trust in God's redemption. Maybe you've even felt some of the weight of your sin and your conscience bears witness to the reality of God's coming judgment. But you, like the Muslim or the Mormon, stop in verse 3 and say, I'll be able to stand before God. If I just do enough good... He surely will forgive me. Please hear this with all the love and care that I have to offer. 
you're wrong. You will not be able to stand before God on judgment day on your own merit. None, none of us will. God's law demands absolute perfection. Perfection's a weight that will cause even the most moral man's legs to crumble up underneath it. There's never been a man who can claim absolute perfection when it comes to keeping God's law. Except one man. The God-man. The man Christ Jesus. He condescended to us by veiling himself in human flesh, keeping the law of God in its entirety on our behalf, and then absorbing the full weight of God's wrath reserved for us. He took our sin upon him in exchange for his perfect righteousness, so that when we repent of our sins and believe in him, we're given a plea before the judgment of God. We're covered in his perfections and therefore are enabled to now stand before God with a perfection that's not our own. You must believe this. It's the only way to escape the wrath to come. Secondly, for those of us who have repented and believed already, now you need to move on from repenting and believing to repenting and believing. May I remind you, of Martin Luther's first of his 95 theses, which reads, When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, also began his, uh, his work, The Doctrine of Repentance, by saying, The two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which He flies to heaven. Repentance and faith are to be exercised regularly by the Christian. Not only should they be exercised, but really they're the summary of what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a life that consists of repenting and believing. Repenting of sins and believing in the gospel. And this psalm provides us with a great model of what that looks like. Confession of sin, profession of God's holiness, hope and faith, and then a proclamation of God's goodness. One other thing to consider is that our pers- what's our perspective on the depths? Because the depths should be considered as a gift from God. Think about how merciful it is for God to place you in the depths when those same depths will lead to redemption. It's not a bad thing to feel guilt and shame for our sins. In fact, it's one of God's gifts to us. It's a grace given to us that leads us to redemption. He uses it to bring us to redemption. And so don't, don't despise the depths. Don't scorn at the means that God uses to bring you to glory, however painful and uncomfortable it may be in the moment. God uses the depths for His glory and for our good. And so we have to praise God for the depths. I'd like to close by reading, rereading our scripture reading for this morning. It was a parable that Jesus taught, and it's a beautiful illustration of the psalm. 
I'm going to read and, and then close, but I just want you to pay attention to who, where they were pointing these two men and what the result was. Luke 18, 9-14 says this, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying, or was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes for all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the depths. I thank you for this psalm. I thank you for Jesus, the Redeemer, the perfect sacrifice. I pray, Lord, that we all would be like the tax collector in the parable, like the psalmist, who doesn't look to himself and to his own deeds to be made right before God, before you, but that we would look outside of ourselves, that we would look to another for mercy. I pray that we would all live lives of ongoing faith and repentance in you, and that Jesus would always be made be pointed to and looked to and that we would be captivated by his glory and his majesty. So I thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.